Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Are you ready to improve your overall performance? Performance may be translated over into sport and athletic endeavors, but we can still enhance performance for those off the field as well. For instance, a CEO of a company still needs to up their game so they can have clarity in how they grow and run their business. Or a parent might want to improve their performance so they can keep up with their kids or have the energy to help them with their homework. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people who have an injury or illness that holds them back from enjoying the outdoors. And today, we will be discussing performance nutrition and how to optimize the foods you eat to better suit the goals you want to achieve. Our guest, Dr. Jeff Lacoven, helps people to improve their performance levels by focusing on diet, movement, and lifestyle factors. But before we dive into this episode, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. As you'll learn in this episode, if you are eating really well and are getting the highest quality foods you can, then you should be receiving adequate amounts of micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. However, The majority of us can use a little boost, and Athletic Greens powder contains over 75 whole food ingredients to fill in the micronutrient gaps. You can learn more at summitforwellness.com slash greens. Now, let's dive right into my conversation with Dr. Jeff Lacoven. Dr. Jeff Lacoven is a chiropractor, naturopathic physician, and an acupuncturist. He specializes in treating musculoskeletal pain and sports injuries by integrating trigger point acupuncture and dry needling, soft tissue release, joint manipulation, corrective exercise, and nutrition. Thank you, Jeff, for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. And it's I love that you're a chiropractor, a naturopathic phys- physician, and an acupuncturist, which all of those take a long, lot of schooling and a long time to get into. So can you talk about what got you so interested in the health industry and what made you want to do all that schooling to learn so much? Sure. So uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada and uh, did my uh, undergraduate in exercise science and got into some uh, amateur bodybuilding during that time. And while I was training, I was injured and a friend of mine talked me into going to see a chiropractor. So I went to see somebody and thought, wow, this is a, this is a cool deal. I think I'm going to go this route. And prior to that, I was heading more towards the naturopathic medical route. But I kind of decided to take a sidetrack. So I finished my, my undergraduate and moved to Los Angeles. Went through the chiropractic program there. And about uh, three-quarters of the way into the program, I got more into nutrition. So there was a, a school... Um, or a, a program out of the University of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and they ran it out of a hospital in LA on uh, a monthly. So you would go for like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday and go through a master's program in, in nutrition. So as I uh, was graduating from chiropractic college, I kind of segued into this uh, nutrition program and then was in private practice during the, the week. And then, so I'm practicing, I have my nutrition master's and, and I'm trying to integrate that into my practice. And I get an article from my dad uh, from the Vancouver Sun newspaper about this guy doing something called uh, intramuscular stimulation. So I was uh, up in Vancouver, asked if I could take this guy out for for lunch. I took him out for lunch. And this thing is called, um, it's uh, IMS or it's dry needling. It's a neuroanatomical approach to acupuncture. So rather than focusing on meridians and and, um, 
the traditional Chinese concepts. It was more neuroanatomical, looking at orthopedics, uh, neurology, that kind of thing. And I thought it was a really good um, kind of segue or, or um, a complement to chiropractic. So I called the BC Board of Chiropractors and I said, what can I do in order to track, to practice this dry needling and chiropractic? And they said, you can't, you have to choose one or the other. So then I called the naturopathic board and they said, well, if you have uh, the training, then you can, you can practice as both. So I said, all right, I'm moving back to Seattle to go into the naturopathic medical program. So I, I start the uh, process uh, of becoming a, a naturopathic physician and I'm, I'm in the interview process and I go, well, what about the acupuncture? And I say, well, that's a completely other, uh, another program. So, so I go for the interview for that program. So I'm um, at this point in a kind of a dual master's uh, naturopathic program um, that I powered through in um, probably kind of speedy time. Um, I did it in about three years or just under three years. And um, so I have these tools as a naturopathic doctor, a chiropractic, a chiropractor and acupuncture and, and a lot of good tools, but I still didn't really know how to integrate it the way that I thought would be like the most efficient, you know, people would come in, I would do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't where I wanted it to be. So an intern came into my practice and he showed me a book one day called um, Training for a New Millennium. And it was written by a guy named Mike Clark, who is a founder, uh, one of the founders of the NASM National Academy of Sports Medicine. And so I looked through this book and I said, this is really interesting material. The, the assessment process was really cool. The uh, information was really interesting. And, and I went and started taking all these online NASM classes. I took a live class and then I saw that they were advertising for instructors. So I went through the instructor process with, with NASM and started to integrate their model of assessment and treatment, which is really designed um, for personal trainers but Dr. Clark was using it with basketball teams like the Phoenix Suns and uh, other professional teams and, and really having some um, spectacular results. So I started to integrate this movement scene, which uh, the um, assessment, which is an overhead squat, and you break it down using uh, range of motion testing, palpation, manual muscle testing to identify exactly where the pathology is or the, or the dysfunction is. So. Then I started to apply all my tools, so my dry needling, my manual therapy, my corrective exercise, and I started to get my results were like unbelievable. So, so now you know, this time now I'm integrating that NASM model with with manual therapy, and and then um, then I got more into into um, uh, nutrition and specifically performance nutrition. I went to see. Um, Susan Kleiner, who's a performance nutritionist that was one of the founding members of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And I said, well, I want to learn this stuff. So I went through their certification process and then subsequently went through uh, more certifications through the International Olympic Committee and then a company called the um, Guru Performance. And, and so I've got these advanced uh, diplomates in, uh, or diplomas in, in sports nutrition. And that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> that, that's a very large nutshell right there. Um, so you were doing bodybuilding before you were getting into all the schooling for chiropractic and whatnot. Is that correct? I was doing, yeah. Yeah. So has your idea around the methodologies for bodybuilding changed after you've gone through all this schooling? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I still, for my own exercise, I prefer to take, um, I mean, into strength training and more hypertrophy because I believe in terms of metabolic health, it's, um, it's kind of king, you know, for, for blood sugar, for, uh, for longevity. Um, you know, my, my the partner that I work with here, he's into CrossFit. Um, 
I'm into cross fix. Um, so we have a good <laughs> melding here. So, uh, but I, I really find that, um, strength training is, is, um, just been good for my own mental health and, and for my own health. Um, but I do follow, I like the OPT model with NASM, which is kind of a pyramid where you, you build on stabilization or core, and then you add strength and then you add power. So, um, I kind of fit my hypertrophy and strength training within that OPT model. And then you had mentioned uh, you wanted to learn more about performance nutrition, which is going to be the topic that uh, we're talking about today. So can you define what does performance nutrition encompass? So it's just a, it's more of an, an, a word for sports nutrition. So basically, um, I'll use it for athletes who want to perform better or uh, people who want to gain weight or lose weight or even just wellness in general. So it's uh, my approach in general for with, with nutrition or in general with my, my sports type of practice is people will come in, they either want to lose weight, they want to gain weight, they want to perform or they want to be well. And I've tried to use the concepts that a lot of, of uh, athletes will use in my practice. So I, like for example, even with the weight management athletes, people who want to lose weight, um, who follow traditional types of, of uh, recommendations, I'll use more of like a, a maybe a bodybuilding or physique style approach. And I find that it's really effective. I mean, you look at the population of physique athletes and they gain a lot of weight um, in a, a, short weight, a short period of time and then they cut down and they look really good, uh, relatively speaking, depending on the, the athlete or what you consider to be looking good. But in general, somebody who has a lot of lean body mass and, um, you know, not not too big, but even you know for, with women, if they have lean a lot more lean body mass and and um, um, you know more muscle, I think that looks good. I think it's healthier. And so by combining strength training, maybe a little bit of high intensity interval training, and um, the appropriate type of dietary measures, I think that's been really effective for my population of non athletes or anybody who wants to lose weight. Um, and then again, so people who are trying to, to gain weight or people who are trying to perform that's, you know, it's the whole realm of, you know, what an athlete wants or, or needs in order to be at the peak of their game. So we're talking a lot about people that are trying to enhance their uh, performance, whether it's on the field, on the court. Um, a lot of times I hear of, uh, a lot of principles that people use for, athletics can also cross over into like high level CEOs or executives because they're also kind of playing an upper level game. Do you work with that at all? Sure. I do as well. I do have some CEOs and, and more like a heads of corporations that come in and, and um, I mean, for the most part, they're, they're trying to get healthy. They're trying to get well. And, um, but you know, they're trying to perform too. So like I look at my performance, also performance in life and performance in health and how to optimize those things, which from a holistic perspective would encompass their body, um, their biochemistry and their mental health. Right. Yeah. And being the head of a, a large company or any type of company, their head has to be in the right place to be able to think and be able to grow the business the way that it needs to grow. Um, so let's dive into a little bit the differences for performance because, um, you know, if we're thinking about the energy requirements of a sport versus energy requirements of someone trying to lose weight, and in some sports, people are losing weight in order to be uh, ready for their sport. I'm thinking like wrestlers or fighters, boxers, anything like that. Uh, can you break down what, how do you start to change the nutritional 
program for them to be able to make sure that they have the energy that they need to perform at the level that they need to perform. So, so basically what I do is I'll figure out there, um, I go through a pie chart to show them what, what, what makes up metabolism. Okay. So if you, if you were to draw a circle and to cut it in, and to um, divide it into thirds, so two thirds or about 60% is considered to be or thought to be due to your resting metabolic rate your RMR or your BMR, people say sometimes. So basically, these, these are the, um, this is what it takes to keep you alive and run your processes, like your different systems, your nervous system, your brain, so on, like your circulatory system, endocrine system. And so it's based on your, your gender, your height, your weight, your age, um, and um, lean body mass as well. So some of these things are kind of like uh, set in stone. We can't change. We can increase our lean body mass right through resistance training so i kind of gently point that out to an individual that it's important to have more lean body mass because it's going to make you more metabolically active at rest meaning that at rest doing nothing you're going to burn more calories just by having more muscle so then we have uh the next 30 percent which is um tdee or total daily energy activity oh sorry total daily energy expenditure and um, that's composed of your exercise right? And what happens after your exercise. So we know that if you do, for example, uh, high intensity interval training, you have what's called the epoch effect or excess post um, oxygen consumption that occurs after you exercise where you're actually burning calories for the next 48 to 72 hours just by doing this intense exercise. So imagine like you're pushing on the accelerator of your car, you've got this burning effect and then it slowly releases, but you're still burning gas as it's releasing. Same kind of thing with this, uh, with EPOC or high intensity interval training. Resistance training has a similar metabolic effect. Generally steady state type of exercise where you're sitting doing cardio um, in the fat burning zone, so to speak, for like 45 minutes or so, um, is gonna burn some calories, but it's really in inefficient. You know, somebody could go in there and do 45 minutes, maybe burn four, four, 400 calories, something like that, um, steady state activity, and then go to Starbucks and drink a frappuccino macchino and uh, drink it all back in a couple of minutes, right? So, it, and a lot of people have this, this mental idea that I, I've earned it. I'm going to, you know, this idea of like, I, I went to the gym so I can have this or have that. And that really is um, it's counterproductive and self-sabotaging. So also part of this, of this energy expenditure is something called NEAT. NEAT stands for um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's actually been thought to be even more of a part for weight management. So things like fidgeting, um, just taking a little bit extra time to walk to get somewhere, um, standing up a little bit more. We stand in our clinic most of the time. And so uh, a lot of times people will uh, substitute activities um, like they'll do the exercise, for example, and then they won't do anything else for the rest of the day. I've done my exercise, right? And that's not good. So it's important to incorporate NEAT as well. So I incorporate people to get like uh, maybe a fitness monitor, like a Fitbit or something like that, and, and aim for seven to uh, 7,000 to 10,000 steps a day. And that goes a long way for those individuals who are trying to, to lose weight. And the last 10% is the thermic effect of food. So um, when we're looking at... Um, 
the thermic effect of food, we're looking at different macronutrients, so that's carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, have uh, an energy cost in their breakdown. So whereas uh, 100 calories of Captain Crunch might have the same value as 100 calories of a piece of steak, the way your, your body metabolizes these foods is a lot different. There's an energy cost in breaking down that 100 calories of steak, so it's not actually going to translate when it's stored, if it is stored, as 100 calories. So, so uh, taking it all again to summarize, you've got um, you've got your resting metabolic rate, you've got um, total daily energy expenditure, and you've got the thermic effect of food, and that makes up your um, you know your metabolism. So once we can determine these things, and there's a lot of online calculators that are like, especially for um, they use um, equations. So like Harris Benedict equation is really popular, a Cunningham equation. So somebody will come in, for example, and I'll plug in their height, their weight, their age, and um, it'll spit out a number that is a rough, roughly their um, their resting metabolic rate. And then we can also um, use a calculator to figure out their total daily energy expenditure based on what they're performing in a day with their activity. And, um, and then that can give us a rough idea of where, how many calories they're burning in a day. And now if they want to gain weight, then we're going to add maybe three to 500 calories in surplus. If they want to lose weight, we're going to go the other direction. Um, so it's like a teeter-totter of energy balance. Do you, cause you mentioned Fitbits, do you ever, um, follow the amount of calories that are burned based off of a Fitbit or like a, uh, Apple Watch or anything like that that's tracking their heart rate all day long. Do you think that's accurate or no? I, I think that it's a good place to start, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to give us some data. Um, I mean, the accuracy is is questionable, but what else do we have, right? So th these are tr these right. are affordable tracking tools. You know, people can't afford to to do the gold standards like in you know calorimetry type of things where, where you're you're going into these chambers and they're actually like determining things in like in a really controlled setting right i mean it's not it's not feasible it's not it's not a practical so these give us some rough ideas and so let's say you came in and say okay you know jeff i want to lose some weight okay let's get a foundation let's let's find out um what you're burning in a day okay and then let's create a deficit. Let's put you on a diet. Let's incorporate the ex exercise. Let's have you track things, um, you know, with a Fitbit and let's have you write down what you're eating. And then in a couple of weeks, follow up and see where you're at. And then we can adjust things accordingly. Awesome. And I like that you, um, uh, make that correlation between Captain Crunch and steak because I haven't really thought of it in that way. When you have a super hyper palatable food, like a lot of the processed foods where it gives you that initial crunch and then just melts, you're not having to use much of your metabolism to digest that food because it breaks down so quickly. Um, and therefore, you're not getting that extra burn. Whereas, like you said, uh, when you're eating a steak, the metabolism kicks in and it takes a lot more energy to fully digest that steak. So yeah. I think that was a really neat point that you brought up. Um, so let's talk about the macros since you talked about, or you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, we have different sports. We have uh, endurance sports and we have sports that require much more anaerobic capacity, uh, more sprints and whatnot. So can you talk about different ways to break down someone's macronutrients to help them perform the best at each of those different type of sports? Sure. So, um, so the first thing I always focus on is protein, and um, and before um, with with the different macronutrients, uh, people would use a percentage. 
like you want X percent of carbohydrates, X percent of fats, and, and some with, with protein. And now, um, so the major organizations that I follow is the International Olympic, Olympic Committee and the International Society of Sports Nutrition. They come up with position stands, and they've kind of moved away from percentages more to uh, body weight and body weight in kilograms. So from a protein perspective, I'm aiming in general for, for my athletes um, for about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, okay? And that's when you look at a lot of the research kind of points to that as being like an, an, optimum, an optimum number. If you go a lot much further or higher up, it's, it's not going to do damage to your kidney or bones like was once thought. That's been debunked. Um, it's not going to do that much more. But um, it might act as an insurance policy. And certainly if somebody was in a calorie deficit, for example, I would encourage them to go up to maybe two grams per kilogram body weight to maintain their lean body mass because you don't want to lose muscle when you're dieting down, right? You want to lose fat. And so in order to maintain your muscle, and you can uh, maintain your muscle and, and sometimes accrue muscle in a calorie deficit if you are doing the right things like uh, resistance training and eating uh, the appropriate amount of protein. So, um, so that's for protein. For carbohydrate, again, it's based on your activity. So somebody who's doing a skill-based activity, three to five grams per kilogram body weight would be kind of that level of carbohydrate that they would need all the way up to maybe 10 to 12 grams to kilogram per kilogram body weight for somebody who's like doing two workouts a day. Maybe they're a triathlete. Maybe they're uh, a professional soccer player that's got a morning workout and an afternoon workout. And they really need that substrate or that carbohydrate in order to fuel and recover from that activity. And then somebody like a strength trainer, a strength uh, athlete like myself, probably more like four grams per kilogram body weight, uh, depending on where I'm at in my um, in my training, if I'm trying to bulk up or if I'm trying to lean out a little bit, I generally kind of stay lean most of the year. Um, but um, carbohydrate, the idea with carbohydrates these days is more of like a periodization of carbohydrates. So you, you eat your carbohydrate around your training in order to fuel your activity. And um, fat is going to come um, somewhere between um, 0.6 and 1 gram per kilogram body weight and focusing on more like essential fats um, with a good omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, healthy monounsaturated fatty acids from avocado, nuts, um, uh, that kind of thing, and then um, limiting the unhealthy fats um, like the seed oils and um, canola, that kind of thing, sunflower, safflower. It seems like a lot of people have a hard time getting enough protein in their diets. Do you have some good uh, tips or strategies people can use to get more protein? Sure. So um, it's it's probably, you want to think maybe around 0.4 grams per kilogram body weight per, per major meal, right? That's one way of looking at it. Um, I usually start or recommend uh, smoothies as a good way to add some protein in there. So if you're... Um, don't have a problem with dairy, then a whey protein um, isolate would be something good to add. I like show me the way it's a, a concentrate and isolate. So it's more of a whole food. You're getting both parts. It's more, you know, more of the, of the dairy. Um, if somebody is uh, a vegan or um, a plant-based athlete, then using maybe Vega or some kind of uh, a more of a, a, a pea and rice type of protein, you can do that. So, so you can add that in there and then your snacks, high protein snacks like uh, jerky or, um, or Greek style yogurt or cottage cheese or uh, nut butter on top of a piece of fruit, 
Um, that works really well. Um, so that kind of thing. So like having maybe uh, small frequent meals where you're, um, all of them have a bit of protein in them to get to that final, final number that you're aiming for. And then do you put a lot of emphasis on the micronutrients as well, the vitamins and the minerals? So if you, if you take care of your energy, right? So the, so think of it in terms of, um, of a pyramid. Okay. So this performance approach. So the bottom of the pyramid is going to be energy, right? So you want energy. Energy comes from calories, right? And energy is broken down to the, um, the currency of energy, which is ATP, right? So getting enough energy, ATP, um, from your macronutrients, like whole foods for your carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, right, will generally give us sufficient micronutrients, right? So with micronutrients, I'm looking at um, lots of uh, colorful, plant-based foods um, with healthy, pasture-raised, wild types of, of meats and um, nuts and seeds in order to encompass, um, you know, all the vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients that you would, you know, need for a healthy diet. Now, if you have something called REDS, which is very um, starting to be more prevalent, REDS stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports. So, um, you know, most people know uh, or have heard of the female triad where there's disordered eating, amenorrhea, and um, loss of bone density due to a relative energy deficiency. So women or girls who don't have enough calories, uh, whether it's from uh, not wanting to gain weight or they just can't meet the needs based on their uh, their sport or their activity and, um, you know, the demands and getting that sufficient nutrition in will go into this calorie deficit. They won't have enough energy to not only support their sport, but more importantly, support their health and, and longevity and well-being. So if somebody doesn't have enough energy, they're obviously going to suffer in terms of their macronutrients and micronutrients. And so um, you, know, you want to make, make sure that energy is there to support their food. And again, there's calculators, sorry, to support their sport and, and health. And there's calculators that you can use to figure out whether you're in an um, energy um, uh, activity deficiency type of scenario. And um, another thing to consider is people who are on um, we'll call it, uh, fad diets. Um, and certainly, um, you know, I don't want to classify veganism as a fad diet, but is is a restrictive diet where, um, you know, a lot of times you need to supplement in order to get sufficient micronutrients, you know, such as B12, the essential fatty acids, zinc, vitamin D, um, maybe calcium. And a lot of times um, people will turn to, um, you know, processed types of uh, vegetable-based foods that, um, that simulate meat products, but um, are processed not all that healthy. And again, um, not balanced enough to get that full array of, of um, micronutrients that you would need. The other, the other type of fad diet, I would say, um, people might get angry with me <laughs> for these things that I'm saying, but would be um, ketogenic diet. So here you're, you're missing a whole slew of potential nutrients. And um, definitely from a performance perspective, that type of eating is um, not going to help an athlete. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's so many people that jump on to all these different type of diets and they forget about, you know, when you're all in on one or the other, you're going to lose something somewhere in the middle. So, um, and then you, you definitely talked about the quality of the food that you're eating also makes a, a big difference in the micronutrients that you're getting from that food as well. So 
um, if people can afford it, the better the quality of the food, the better it'll be for their bodies. Yeah. Um, so, so again, so you got that, that energy, right? Then you got the macronutrients and then the pyramid's getting a little smaller, right? It's coming up like this. So you get, then you got the micronutrients, right? So if you think of like, again, just eating a balanced diet, um, and just use the acronym JERF, J-E-R-F, just eat real food. Um, trying to get your, your nutrients from whole foods, real foods. Then the next rung would be nutrient timing. And then on the very top is uh, supplements. And most people have it the other way around. They go like, you know, like this and they put, they focus on supplements. What pill can I take? Um, right. You know, and, um, you know, really supplements have been shown to uh, maybe have a three to 5% effect on performance. And very few of them are really, you know, really actually work. And um, they, uh, you want to address all the other stuff first. Yeah. And so uh, let's talk about that uh, with performance. Cause once you start getting to upper levels of athletics, um, certain supplements are not allowed because they can be, you know, considered performance enhancing or whatnot. So what should people be looking for in supplements um, just in general? And then as you start increasing in your athletic endeavors, what should you be looking out for so that you maintain um, legality in the sport that you're in? So um, there's a company or an organization called Informed Choice and or Informed Sport, and they, um, they will screen uh, substances for the raw materials, the batch materials, and the actual product themselves. So if a, if a, if a supplement is informed, um, certified, then you're kind of guaranteed that you're not going to get a contaminated product. And so, I mean, let's say you're an athlete and you're competing in the Olympics and you take a product and, and unbeknownst to you, it's got a steroid in it, right? And um, you're drug tested and they find the steroid in your, in your urine, you're out. Right. There's like, yep. So um, you want to get make sure there's no banned substances from contamination. You know, that's like the most important thing. Now, if you're a recreational athlete, maybe you don't care. I mean, personally, I care what goes in my body. So I don't want to I don't want to, you know, choose questionable types of, of supplements. So I try to choose products that and when I do choose them, I don't take a whole lot of supplements, but I try to choose products that are, I know are, are safe and, um, you know, products that are, are individual. Like I don't like to take products that have a whole bunch of different things in them because usually you're they're getting marked up for you know say it's got this that and the other in it but there's not enough of anything in order to give you the therapeutic or, or effect that you're looking for and so if someone is just looking at a supplement is there good ways for them to be able to distinguish between a good quality supplement and one that might not be the best for them so um well First of all, like I always ask my patients, why, what do you, what's the needs analysis here? Like, okay, you want to take this supplement. What are you trying to accomplish? Right? So sometimes people will say like, um, I want more energy. I go, well, energy doesn't come from supplements. Energy comes from macronutrients, carbohydrates primarily and fat. So if you're looking for more energy, getting a B12 shot is not going to push a biochemical pathway any faster unless you're deficient. If you're deficient in something, you know, then you need to take a supplement. So I usually say like, let's check you for deficiency. Now I had a trainer once refer me a, a patient of hers or a client of hers who she said, go, go see no, Dr. Jeff. He'll give you a B12 shot. So I said, um, okay, well, what do you want the B12 shot for? She goes, I've got low energy. 
okay, let's, let's look at the history. What do you do? When are you feeling this low energy? I ride horses. I compete riding horses. Okay. Tell me about your diet. Well, I don't like to eat because I want to go to the bathroom. Okay. So you're not getting enough energy, right? So you want me to give you some B12 shot to give you energy, but you really, your energy is coming from the food. You're not getting enough food. So I tested her B12. Her B12 was fine just to show her that. And then we started integrating food into her diet in such a way that it wasn't going to be disruptive to her competition. And she started to feel better. And so, um, so it's like figuring out what, so what are you looking for? What's the need? What are you trying to accomplish? Right. And a lot of times you can do it with a macronutrient. Like macronutrients are, they're substrates for energy, right? They, they give you energy based on the intensity specifically of your activity, right? So um, there's something called the respiratory exchange ratio, and that's the inter interchange or exchange of carbohydrate, sorry, of carbon dioxide and uh, oxygen when you're exercising. The slower or the lower this number, the more fat you're burning. So you and I sitting here right now are preferentially burning fat. Right? Hopefully, unless we're uh, insulin resistant or have some so, um, some kind of um, you know you know type two diabetes or something of that nature, where we're just our insulin's not working well. As we start to pick up the activity, if we want to go walk for a fast walk, then we're going to burn a combination of car carbohydrates and fats. And then the higher your intensity, you're going to burn more um, carbohydrate. Right? That's why a ketogenic diet doesn't work well for something like CrossFit or um, you know, somebody who's doing like sprinting or, or intermittent types of fast types of activities. Um, but so like from a supplement perspective, I might supplement carbohydrates, right? I also might um, not supplement carbohydrates, meaning I might have somebody train low. So this, this idea is that if you train low, you're signaling your body through the absence of substrate to go down one pathway. So training in a carbohydrate depleted state or a glycogen depleted state will stimulate um, AMPK and PGC1-alpha, which are uh, molecular signaling molecules, which will cause mitochondrial biogenesis. So what does that mean? You're gonna have more mitochondria. As a endurance athlete, the more mitochondria you have, the more aerobic capacity potentially you're gonna have. So if you use this training low type of, of, of um, approach a couple times a week, not every time, and then compete high, not high, but high, you know what I'm saying, right? Glycogen, a glycogen state, then you're going to have more mitochondria and more glycogen available to use in these mitochondria. You're going to have a performance enhancement type of, of uh, ability by just manipulating your macronutrients. Yeah, that is super fascinating. And that's getting a little bit you know, a little bit more uh, deep into how you can play with the macros and showing people that the way that you play with the macronutrients and what you do with them can definitely enhance the performance, which is what a lot of these athletes are trying to do. So like you said, it doesn't necessarily need to be a supplement that pushes them over the edge. It can just be playing around with the macronutrients a little bit. Now, so when you get back, go, sorry, you were asking about like, um, you know, other vitamins and things like that from a supplement perspective, right? So a supplement can be, it can be a vitamin, it can be a mineral, right? And again, I'm going to base those on um, whether I think they're in a deficiency state um, based on their diet or potentially some, some blood tests, right? Um, there was a, a feed on the, um, so I'm on a bunch of Facebook feeds for the International Society of Sports Nutrition and a couple other nutrition groups. And somebody asked a question on the feed today 
Um, you know, what, how should I dose antioxidants for uh, health and exercise performance? And so, um, specifically vitamin C and vitamin, vitamin E. And so I, I kind of got on there in between patients and I said, if you're looking for uh, optimum health and optimum performance, using pharmacological or super physiological doses of antioxidants can be counterproductive to those objectives. Because when you have, when you exercise, you're creating some reoxygen, um, so reactive oxygen species, so some, some oxidants, right? Those are signaling molecules for something to happen, repair or an adaptation, right? If you take an antioxidant, you're going to block that. So it's counterproductive from that perspective. If you're inflamed because you have an injury um, and you take an antioxidant, you're potentially blocking your body's ability to heal by blocking that pathway. So if somebody was an athlete that was playing like in the Olympics, for example, or they had multiple sports or like um, a tournament, I'd say, go ahead, take the antioxidants, try and reduce the inflammation as much as you can to limit the tissue damage, you know, during this, this time. But if you're trying to get healthy and, and um, um, get the most out of your exercise, then get your antioxidants from food, not from a supplement. Got it. And so if we're taking a look at your pyramid, at, is there a, a layer on the pyramid specifically for hydration or should that just be in there no matter what in a focus uh, for every single athlete? Yeah. So I would, I mean, definitely if you were to, you know, take that pyramid, I would have a, like a thin, a thin line up the entire, you know, aspect of the pyramid side for, yeah, side for hydration, right? You know, Hydration, you know, if you are, um, you know, as little as 2% dehydrated, your performance and health is going to, is going to suffer. So, um, you know, I ensure that, um, you know, you know, after, so you want to try and prevent things. You don't want to overhydrate, right? Cause that can affect your electrolytes. So, um, hydration is really important. Basically, if you're in a sport that's under an hour, water's just fine. Once you start to get more or over an hour and then under conditions where you're in altitude or heat, then you want to start to, to add um, sodium and maybe a little bit of carbohydrate in order to maintain your glycogen stores and also to maintain your hydration because you're going to suffer. We live here in Washington where it seems like everybody's just drinking gallons of coffee all day long. Um, so do you see a significant uh, increase in people being dehydrated around here or what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think there's also some question about whether, um, you know, there's going to be diuresis with anything that you drink, right? So is coffee like a, a harmful diuretic? I think that also has been something that's been kind of debunked to, to a certain extent. And so um, I would say like, I mean, coffee is probably, um, or caffeine is one of my favorite ergogenic aids because it's been, it's very well researched. It's not harmful um, unless you start, taking, you know, really high doses and, and uh, are working out in the heat. And there's been some, some reports and, and cases of, of heart attacks and strokes and things like that. But these are people who are, are not paying attention to their body. They are dehydrated and they are stressing their, their body to, uh, uh, you know, in a harmful, in a harmful way. But, um, you know, so I, I say like from a hydration perspective, um, I mean, certainly you want to try and keep your, your urine clear. That's one way, you know, so it's, looking at your kind of a rough idea of your specific gravity or 
or your um, the concentration in your in your urine. So that can be helpful. Um, if you're uh, drinking too much, then and you have spasms or or you're washing out your your electrolytes, that can be a, a problem as well. So it's not good to overhydrate. It's not good to underhydrate. You want to find the uh, you want to have the, the Goldilocks effect, you know, just whatever's just right in order to meet the needs of your activity and, and health. So if you're working with a female athlete, do you have to change their um, meal plan throughout the month to follow alongside their menstrual cycles? Or is that a little too high level for most athletes? So there is a diet called the menstrualine diet. And it's a study if you wanted to go to Google Scholar, for example, um, and and uh, Google Scholar is a great resource for those people who don't haven't heard of it. So basically, there's a there's a search engine that takes you to um, you know all kinds of studies. So you could, for example, plug in you know sports nutrition, um, performance enhancement for sprinting, you know, and you get all and you can narrow it down to a certain timeline. Um, and you so you get all these these studies, and sometimes you'll just get the abstract. Sometimes you'll get the entire study, depending whether it's um, open access or not. But so that menstrualine study um, is a cool way of looking like how do uh, women change throughout their their cycle. So certainly, like in a, um, in a in a woman in her um, you know childbearing years there is going to be, uh, you know, changes depending on whether she's in the follicular phase or luteal phase of her cycle, whether she's menstruating or ovulating. Um, there's going to be a need for more nutrition in order to support the extra metabolism that's involved in her, you know, metabolic rate, you know, so to speak. So, you know, and I would say like, you almost want to like, um, you know, prepare for this before it happens. So before the onset of menstruation, you know, you know, as long as you're not pregnant, not as long as you're not pregnant, but like, let's say that you're, you're, you know, going through that luteal phase, you're uh, a week out before menstruation, and you know that you're going to be bleeding, you're going to lose iron, you're going to have um, increased needs, you want to probably increase your energy, your carbohydrates, your iron uh, rich types of foods, um, in order to support the process, as well as any kind of sports that you might be doing at that time. Awesome. And then as kids are growing up, do you have to make special considerations for them as well? Yeah. Or after a certain point, are they able to just kind of follow suit what adults follow? Yeah. So kids are not just little adults. They have different, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they have different needs for um, the way they handle sweat. Um, and so hydration, they are, um, you know, their requirements for sleep are, are different. And, um, you know, you basically, you know, for my athletes right now, for example, who are their adolescents or they're, you know, they're going through puberty, so they have to deal with that extra growth that's required. So they're going to need more calories. They're going to need more carbohydrates. They're going to need more, um, you know, more protein in order to support not only that process, but the pro in addition to whatever sports that they're, that they're doing um, to support that. And then uh, if you were to create a meal plan for an athlete or if someone wanted to create a meal plan for an athlete, can you give us some general consider considerations we should take to create that meal plan? Sure. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll, um, I like the healthy plate, right? So the healthy plate, you're going to have a uh, half plate. You're going to divide the plate in half. Half the plate is going to be color, colorful vegetables, fruits, um, and then the other half you're going to divide between protein, so some kind of healthy protein source, like you know, like I said, 
um, pasture raised, wild game, um, you know, eggs, that kind of thing. And then in the other portion is going to be some kind of healthy fiber type. So it could be um, from a breakfast perspective, it could be oatmeal. Um, it could be some kind of, um, you know, multi-grain type of toast. I've been into this happy camper toast these days that comes out of Portland. It's like a, a happy camper. This is a nutrient dense um, bread. Um, it could be quinoa, you know, with berries, things like that in it. Um, and then I'm going to manipulate this plate based on the day. So let's say you have an athlete that's got a rest day. So they don't need as much starch, right? They're resting, right? So that's what we're talking about periodizing your carbohydrates, right? So that, that part might become a little bit smaller and you're going to increase your vegetables and increase your protein. Let's say they're in a calorie deficit. Same might hold true. Let's say that person has a big uh, endurance activity the next day. They have a rowing um, meet. The night before, that plate is going to be filled with carbohydrates, brown rice, or pasta, quinoa, things like that. I'm going to want to make sure they have uh, a full um, muscle and liver glycogen that they're going to bed with. And then in the morning, they're going to top it off with more carbohydrate. So you're going to play the temp. It's going to be the template, right? It's a template that kind of describes like what are the basics. And then you manipulate the amount on each portion of that plate based on the needs of the athlete. Awesome. Well, this has been extremely uh, just information packed. Do you have any final things that you want to touch on before we wrap up? Um, just, I mean, the basics are just, just eat real food, um, follow that pyramid. And, you know, just to reiterate, you want to focus on getting adequate energy. Um, and then with the macronutrients, get, get your, you know, your protein set first, periodize your carbohydrates around your activity, um, get in healthy fats, um, and then colorful plant-based foods with healthy meats in order to meet your micronutrients. Time your nutrients, your nutrition around your, um, your activities, um, or time them if you're trying to create some sort of metabolic adaptation, for example, like we talked about um, training low. And then consider supplements once you have all the stuff below um, in check and then with those supplements just know that there are a few that are effective but based on speci your specific sport right so like if you're somebody wants to increase their lean body mass and is a or a sprinter then something like um, creatine monohydrate beta alanine beetroot juice these are things that can be helpful to to do that if you're um somebody that's um you know, just looking for general health, then I would say, you know, try and get things through your food. Um, and then again, caffeine, like I mentioned, is another good supplement, but I'd, I'd like to get that through coffee um, as well. Awesome. So just eat real food is uh, the big takeaway here. Uh, well, people can find you at Northwest Integrative Medicine Clinic, which is in Kirkland, Washington, I believe. Is that correct? Downtown Kirkland. Yeah. And uh, your website is drjefflecoven.com, and that's G-E-O-F-F for Jeff. Um, is there anywhere else people can find you? Are you on social media or anything? Um, I am. Well, I've written a lot of blogs. So if you go to my website, there's, uh, there's um, a lot of blogs on the stuff that we just talked about. Um, I've written for the NASM, so they're... Um, their blog. I've got a lot of nutrition articles and, and uh, exercise fitness types of articles. 
Um, and that would be it. So I am on Facebook. I'm on, uh, I don't tweet a whole lot on Twitter. I am on uh, LinkedIn. But. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know there's a lot of athletes that have been asking about uh, different ways to increase their performance. So this will be extremely helpful for them. Great. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jeff does a great job at breaking down nutrition into actionable steps to improve your performance. And if you heard his brief intro at the end of the last episode, the acronym SPEED is a great place to start. It stands for sleep, psychological stressors, environment, exercise, and diet. So after listening to this episode, what steps are you going to test out for your own performance gains? I would love to hear about what you have tried so if you go on to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, you can talk about your results and the reviews on those platforms. Are you ready to take your health to the next level? If so, our health programs are designed to help you make lasting changes to your health. With our habit-changing process, we walk alongside you on your health journey, making sure that you are successful and feel like the best version of you. To learn more, go to summitforwellness.com ready. Next week, we have Megan Fritz of Never Stop Moving coming onto the show to talk about rock climbing and how it builds connection, mental focus, and is a fun way to get exercise in while testing your own limits in a safe environment. So let's go learn a little bit about Megan. I am here with Megan Fritz. Hey, Megan, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? I'm afraid of heights, even though I'm a rock climber, and I am still struggling with the fear of falling on sport climbing. <laughs> And what is the tallest route that you've ever done? Oh, I probably will say wherever I may roam at Smith Rock State Park. I okay. don't know the height. It's about five pitches. <laughs> so you've been quite a ways off the ground, even though you're afraid of heights. Yeah, around 300 feet or so. Wow, good for you. Thank you. So what will we be learning about in our interview together? Yeah, so you're going to learn what rock climbing is, how you can do it, and have fun regardless of your age, gender, size, strength, how none of that matters, um, and how it can give a positive, how it can have a positive mental and physical impact on your life. And how has climbing changed your life? Um, climbing has definitely had a huge impact on me in more ways than I could even say in five minutes, but um, it's given me outlets to deal with um, stress. It's given me a way to stay in shape and have fun while doing that. Um, it's allowed me to solve problems and think critically um, outside the box as to how to complete a climb. It's given me so many friendships um, and allowed me to trust and um, really have um, a sense of partnership with a lot of people. Um, it's given me motivation to go outside and has definitely allowed me to overcome my fears, such as heights um, and my and what I'm capable of achieving. That will be a really fun episode to listen to next week, especially if you are curious about getting into rock climbing. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.